Well, now, do you see how much fun it is to be in the choir? How can you resist an opportunity to become a part of this wonderful choir? Of course, you know what is happening very surreptitiously before you recognize it. You are being made into a choir. Gradually here, you're learning to sing parts, and you're learning to have male solos and female solos, and pretty soon we're all going to be a choir. And we do thank Charlton Meyer for the wonderful ministry of leading us in our singing. But let me ask you to pray about it. Would you pray about it? Whether the Lord would have you in the choir? Now, if your spouse tells you, no, you should not be in the choir, then take that as good advice. But, you know, there may be some here that ought to be in the choir. And it's a wonderful ministry. It is a biblical ministry. If you have that gift, then that may be God's sign of calling to you, you know. The Lord doesn't give a gift without a calling. And if he wants you to fulfill your ministry in this church by being a part of the choir, then do so. This is an invitation for you to become a part of our wonderful choir. Now the scripture for this evening is taken from the book of Genesis, a very familiar passage, and therefore let us be even more diligent to listen with care to this reading of the word of God. And then we shall read also from a New Testament section that expounds on this portion of the Word of God. Genesis chapter 3, beginning to read at verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden. The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden. But God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it, or you will die. You will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He answered, 
I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all the livestock and all the wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and hers. He will crush your head and you will crush his heel. To the woman, God said, I will greatly increase your pains in childbearing. With pain you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. To Adam he said, Because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plant of the field. By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. Now in the New Testament passage often overlooked because it's in the middle of names. Greetings of Paul to various individuals in Rome. Romans chapter 16 verses 17 and following. I urge you brothers to watch out for those who cause divisions And put obstacles in your way that are contrary to the teaching you have learned. Keep away from them. For such people are not serving our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. By smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the minds of naive people. Everyone has heard about your obedience, so I'm full of joy over you, but I want you to be wise about what is good and innocent about what is evil. And the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. May God bless to our hearts the reading and hearing of this portion of his word. Let us pray. We come, O Heavenly Father, to ask that you will make us wise, that you will make us understanding, 
that you will deliver us from captivity to the evil one, and that you will give us the glorious liberty of the sons of God. Redeem us, O Lord, from this terrible pit into which we have fallen, this slavery and bondage to our own corruption and lust, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Lift the veil from our eyes that we may see the deceiver. Help us to call upon the Son of God who has been crushed that we might be saved. For we ask in his name, amen. Now tonight, we're going to make a big transition. You can imagine that this is one of those big jumbo jets, and things are beginning to rumble here, and you're about to take off. We're going to get on to another continent. We're making an intercontinental transition at this point. Well, that's what happens when you move from the covenant of creation to the covenant of redemption. This is a massive kind of transition from the covenant of works as man was originally bound in relationship to God to the covenant of grace by which man is saved. It is absolutely essential that you understand the massive difference between the continent of the covenant of creation the bond by which God set himself in relation to man at creation, and the covenant of redemption, the bond by which God binds himself to man after he has fallen into sin. How are you to understand this distinction? Well, you can see it most basically in this division between a covenant of works and a covenant of grace. In the case of a covenant of works, which was the framework in which man was originally created, there was no provision for for blessing in the event of disobedience. No provision whatsoever. God said, in the day you eat thereof, you shall surely die. And that's what happened to man. His hiding, his veiling, his nakedness was a conscious, subconscious reflection of that guilt within him. He had died rather than rushing to join fellowship with God. He hid himself from him. He had died spiritually. There was no provision for blessing in the covenant of works. Now some of you, some of you right here tonight, keep yourself in the bondage of a covenant of works. You continue to try to establish your right relationship to God by the things that you do. And if you do so, you are under a curse. But praise God, there is a covenant of grace. What is the meaning of the covenant of grace? As over against a covenant, a bond in which there is no provision for blessing in the event of disobedience. In a covenant of grace, you have blessing despite demerit. The presumption is that you are sinners. The presumption is that you have violated the law of God. The presumption is that you are guilty. But in that context, in that dimension of recognition of the reality of the circumstance in which you live, you can be assured of the blessing of God. Now tonight we're going to look at the covenant 
of redemption and see something of this covenant as it is established in the Word of God. And the first thing that we want to notice is the connection of the covenant of redemption with the covenant of creation. Now, there's some theorists that study their geographical maps, and they notice that there's quite a similarity between the shores of the North and South American continents and the shores of Europe and Asia. And they theorize about the possibility that once those two continents were joined together and then separated from one another. So that the reason for the similarity of shape of the two is because of the original binding together. They're two continents separated from one another, and yet there is the suggestion, at least, that they may once have been bound together. Now, so it is with the covenant of creation and the covenant of redemption. It is true that they are as two continents. There is a great gulf fixed between these two. And yet there are definite connections that bind them to one another. And scripture in many ways underscores the fact that in the covenant of redemption, you have a framework in which the intent and goal of the covenant of creation is being realized. Now that's very important as you consider what Christianity is for you. What is Christianity for you? Is it just getting baptized? Is is it just getting, quote, saved, unquote, and then going and living however you wish? That is one concept of Christianity. Just get them to the water and that's the end of it. If you have a proper perspective and understanding of redemption in relation to creation, you will see that your baptism, your being born again, your being brought into the fold, your being saved is only the doorway the entrance to a total new life. And Christianity, as a matter of fact, should be as permeating in your whole life and existence in redemption as it was, as God was active in your creation. Now just noticing some ways in which there is an interconnection between redemption and creation, it's interesting to notice that the words of curse with respect to the covenant of works have embedded in them the words of blessing which inaugurate the covenant of grace. How wonderful is God's grace. Even as we read this evening, as God was speaking the curse upon Satan, upon the woman, and upon the man, those words have embedded in them the blessing, the promise of grace and redemption. And that shows the connection of these two realms of God's working in the world. You can see also in the covenant of redemption the continuing responsibilities of marriage, labor, and the Sabbath ordinance. It's repeated very explicitly with respect to the covenant of Noah, as we shall see, Lord willing, in a week or two. Noah is commanded, multiply and replenish the earth. The very same words that were used in Genesis chapter 1 as Adam was being created and being charged of God. Labor is a responsibility that is still there. Man, you notice, in the sweat of thy face thou shalt eat bread. You shall labor. And that is man's continuing responsibility, though he does it against terrific odds because of the curse of God in the world today. And the Sabbath, the obligation to worship God, to keep him at the center of your life, and to seek that day of rest in which we shall be brought into perfect harmony and fellowship and enjoyment of the consummation of our labors. That is a part of the covenant of redemption as well. 
So you can see the interconnection in that fact that there is a continuing responsibility in the area of marriage, labor, and the Sabbath. And your Christian faith should touch down very concretely in every one of those areas. Now also you can see that there is in the very essence of the covenant of redemption a movement toward restoration. That's the very idea of redemption. It's to get man back to that condition from which he had fallen. And it's not that the covenant of creation came to a sudden and screeching halt and there was a complete end. But there is, as a matter of fact, a continuation and intending of the covenant of redemption ultimately to realize and even to exceed the covenant of creation and its intent. By Christ coming into the world, he was intending and committing himself to redeem man, to restore him and even to give him a better circumstance than he might have had if he had never fallen. And as we look at the covenants, ultimately you shall see this wonderful perspective of a consummation that God will bring us to a stage that even was greater than Adam's in his original unfallen condition. Now, as we look at this covenant of redemption, what you have is essentially one covenant with many subsets. Now, I didn't come in under the days of the new math, and I'm not even sure what a subset is. But if I could just borrow that phrase, it sounds like a good one anyway. The idea is that you have a wholeness, a unity in the covenant of redemption, but you have subsets of the covenant. Now that is attested in the New Testament when in Hebrews chapter 1, or excuse me, Hebrews chapter 13, there is a reference to the blood of the everlasting covenant. A single covenant that has been everlasting. And it is the covenant of blood. The covenant that Christ was committed to perform from eternity, he performed in time, and it will be continuing to be binding for eternity future. So all of the Old Testament history, all of the Old Testament history is a part of this covenant of redemption. It is one with the covenant that you and I experience. It is the everlasting covenant. The blood of the everlasting covenant is that which saved the old covenant believer just as that which saved the new covenant believer. So there's one covenant of redemption. But also, very interestingly, in a passage like Romans 9, verse 3, Paul says, what advantage does the Jew have? What advantage is there for the Israelite? And he says, much every way. And one of the ways that he says is their advantages to them were given the covenants. In plural. To them were given the covenants. In plural. So you have the subsets of the covenants within the unity of the single covenant of God to redeem men. Now this evening we're going to look at Adam, the covenant of commencement. Adam, the covenant of commencement. Now, we're in an academic community and you know what commencement is. That's not the end of things, though students like to think of it. Throw away all those books especially seminarians. They love to sell those Hebrew books that they had to buy and slave over for so many years and say, here, take them. I'm through with them now. Now, that's not what's supposed to be happening, but that is what happens so many times. 
but commencement is the beginning. It's the start. And that's what the covenant with Adam is. Now, interestingly, as just a few introductory remarks to this covenant, in the covenant with Adam, the principle is that the seed contains all. The seed contains all. Now, what does that mean? Well, it simply means that in those few verses that we read tonight, Genesis chapter 3, verses 14 through 19, you have everything. If you need anything to convince you of the God-inspired character of the Bible, just break into pieces Genesis chapter 3, verses 14 through 19. In those verses, you have an explanation for everything that has happened in the world since that time and everything that will happen until the end of time. It is absolutely amazing to see what God has packed into those few verses. And the reason is that the way of redemption has always been the same. The conflict between Satan and God has always been the same. And the way of man's salvation always has been the same. So that God has contained in those few verses everything that is to come subsequently. Now it's interesting also to notice that in those verses, which, are, which is our text for this evening, Genesis chapter 3 verses 14 through 19, you have God speaking according to the order of transgression. God speaking according to the order of transgression. Who transgressed first? Satan did. And so God speaks to Satan first. Who transgressed next? The woman did. And so the next word is to the woman. Who transgressed next? Adam did. And although God recognizes, did you notice in the scripture, how God did recognize the responsibility of the woman with respect to the fall of the man. And the responsibility of Satan with respect to the fall of Adam. He recognized the realm of influence that one had over the other. And the culpability, the blameworthiness that one had on the other. Don't think that God is going to hold you account only for your own sins. He's going to hold you account also for the ways in which you influence others to sin. He is a righteous God. He recognized that responsibility, but he let neither, none of those people off the hook. He brought each one of them to account for the sin that they had done. So the word is follows the, or, follows the order of transgression. And each one of the words includes a curse and a blessing. Each one of the words includes a curse and a blessing. You might outline those verses in Genesis chapter 3 like this. You have curses and blessings in Genesis chapter 3. And we can just almost get that. This is kind of like backing up a truck. You have to go just the opposite way from, from the way you want to go here. That almost gets it. Curses and blessings in Genesis chapter 3 verses 14 through 19. First God speaks to the serpent and he speaks a word of curse but also a word of blessing. Now the blessing is not for Satan but there is a basic blessing there with respect to man and his future in the word that is spoken to the serpent. Then you have the word to the woman in Genesis 3.16. There is a curse spoken toward the woman, but there is also a blessing showing the grace of God. And for the man, there is a curse spoken with respect to him. In the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread. And dust thou art, and unto dust shalt thou return. 
but there's a blessing. You shall eat bread. You shall be preserved in life. Now this evening and in these closing moments, we're just going to look briefly at these words that are spoken to the serpent. The words that are spoken to the serpent. And basically what you have in these words spoken to the serpent is a word about a conflict. The word of God says, I am going to put enmity. I am going to put enmity, hatred, warfare. Now isn't this a strange kind of thing? When God says, I am going to put enmity. And as a matter of fact, in the word order of the original text, it's reversed. So it says, enmity, hatred, warfare. I, the almighty God, shall set in the world. And what's going on here? Well, that's a sign of God's grace. That's a sign of God's grace. And that's why you as a Christian should be encouraged whenever you find yourself struggling in this world. Because you're struggling against sin. You're struggling against Satan. And that is a sign that God is at work in your soul. It is a sign that God is battling alongside you to overcome Satan and his forces. After Adam and Eve had sinned, on whose side were they? Were they on God's side? Or were they on Satan's side? They were on Satan's side. By their sin, Adam and Eve had aligned themselves with the evil one. And as a matter of fact, Paul in Ephesians chapter 2 says, Every one of you were of exactly of that nature before God came into your life. By nature, Paul the Apostle says, you were supporters of Satan. But here is God's word of grace. I'm going to put enmity. I'm going to take the initiative and I'm going to put a wedge between you, Satan, and man, even in his fallen condition. You know what that is in seed form? We'll say it only here. That is in seed form, the doctrine of predestination. That's right. The doctrine of predestination right there. Why is it that some people hate sin? Why is it that some people resist Satan and others go along with him? Why is it that you find yourself in a condition of turning from sin and turning to God? It's because God puts an enmity in your heart. And if God did not take the initiative, you would still be on Satan's side. You would still be opposed to Satan. Now that should not be a point of discouragement and worry about. Something for you to worry about, it should be a point of encouragement to you. For if you are now in that condition of being opposed to Satan and sin, you can say already, God has started a work of grace in me. And the work of grace that God has begun, he shall complete. Furthermore, it gives you full encouragement to have hope for other sinners in the world. You know that person in your family, that brother, sister, that straying son or daughter, that father or mother that has been hardened against sin all their lives? They're not outside of the hope of God. By the grace of God, when he wishes, 
he will, by his grace, move in and place in their hearts an enmity and a hatred against sin and against Satan. All that the Father gives me, says Jesus, shall come to me. But it's all that the Father gives me that shall come to me. Well, we'll close at that point and with that note that here we have a message of the grace of God. Even when man deserves sin, even when man deserves condemnation, even when man deserves destruction and when his nature is wholly inclined to be on Satan's side, when the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, did you notice all three of those elements in the temptation? The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eye, the pride of life came into the heart of Eve and she yielded to those temptations. God nonetheless came. And while they were hiding and cringing from God, he came and showed them grace. That is the meaning of the covenant of grace. That while you were yet sinners, while you were yet enemies, Christ died for you. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you that you did not leave man in his fallen condition, but that by your grace you have given that which was most precious to you, your only Son, to restore us to fellowship with you. We thank you that we need no longer fear your voice, but we can come into your presence and walk with you in the cool of the garden. And, O oh Lord, if there is any sinner here tonight who is still rebellious, resisting your will, work in his heart. Stir him to faith. Let him call upon you that he might have everlasting life. For we ask in Christ the Savior's name. Amen.